Thank you, young men. That was beautiful. Trust it inspired all of us. Okay, if we just take a minute and everyone stand, we'll have a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this afternoon we're gathered in again. So again, our eyes are looking to you. You have the answers to all of mankind's needs. I want to thank you specifically for the word of God. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would open up to us an understanding of your word again this afternoon. To anyone without the Holy Spirit, this word is just like any other to them, but not to us. And so we ask, Lord, whether it's me speaking or whether it's all of us hearing, that the Holy Spirit would make it very specific to each one of us. Help us all to be attentive to your word and then help us to live it out. By your grace, by your power. So bless our uh, afternoon here. Just unite our hearts together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, for this afternoon, I will give you one other aspect on the honeybee. A very, very complex aspect of the honeybee, their communication system. It is so complex. It is so, so complex. I'm going to give you a very, very elementary uh, description of what, as I studied, what I understand of it. And then, Lord willing, I have one more sermon tomorrow morning. And invite you all back. I would like to then give you a story about a hive of honeybees that had actually supported a man to live out his convictions. Anyhow, this complex, uh, this whole idea of communication, it is so complex. Let me see if I could just diagram a little bit to you. They have two specific ways that they give their communications. The worker bees, they find some nectar somewhere and they come back to the hive and somehow they want to tell all the other honeybees exactly where it is. Now, in the big world, how do they do that? Well, they have some very unique ways of doing that. Um, there are two specific ways it's done. The bee will come back and on the hive it'll make this diagram. It'll go around in a circle this way, maybe a time or two, one time, two times, three times. Probably has to do how far away from the hive it is. And then it'll go around a circle here two or three times. Now it'll use that design when the nectar or the feeding source is fairly close to the hive. I don't know where the breakdown comes. I believe there's probably researchers that know. At some point it gets far enough away that they use a different diagram. And that diagram is a figure eight. 
And they'll come back to the hive and they'll dance around the f- uh, and make a figure eight. It's not a, a figure eight that much of an eight, but it is in, in an eight. Now, with that, though, the honeybee does a lot of waggles and noises that also communicate. Researchers have researched that, that they can actually watch and they can pretty much determine by this honeybee as it goes around and it's dancing and it's uh, making noises that they've watched them long enough, they've set out feeding sources, they've demonstrated this thing long enough that they can actually uh, pick on pretty much where the honeybee is going for its nectar. So it is quite a complex Now, the interesting thing is, how do they tell whether it's north or south or east or west? That's one thing I never really figured out, but as I understand it, you have a frame that is vertical, a frame that is vertical. They fly back in and they will do their dance somewhere, and we're going to say on the frame. And so if the feeding source... Here's the, if they say the feeding source, let's say first of all, if the sun is over here, over here the sun is, and say the feeding source is directly from the hive towards the sun, they will do their dance up and vertical. Now, if the feeding source is, say, uh, 60 degrees away, from the sun, then they will do their dance this way. I think that's, that is just amazing. And the other bees all know how to read it. I think they have a better communication than we do. I mean, how many times do I say something and, and later on the brother comes back and said, I heard you say this. <laughs> that's not what I said. What I said is this. I think sometimes they do a better job than we do. So anyhow, that's just a very, very simplistic, elementary uh, idea of a little bit the way it works. They have played with them. So, okay, the other thing would be the distance. How far is it? You know how they figured out the bees? uh, How do they clock it? Do they have some kind of a speedometer or... uh, uh, to, to check the miles. The way they figured it out is, they're fig- they figured out it's by the amount of energy it takes to fly from this point to this point. That's the way, because they've done things like put deflectors on a little bee, a deflector, you know, and then they fly, and of course it's harder to fly. And so they put their own feeding, they put a feeding source out here. And then they put a, they left the bee tell the whole crew, and so these bees are flying back so and forth, so they put a deflector on one time on a bee. And because it took so much more energy, they way overrode the uh, feeding source because they judged it to be much further. Uh, I tried to look into what about wind and, you know, all of that. And I'm not even sure how they calculate that all in. But that's all calculated in. It's just amazing. And they, they did a whole thing of where they had a bee and they, they uh, trained it to go to the one feeding source. They had three of them. And then they uh, 
took the feet away from this source and it started going to this one. Then he took it away and started going to this one. But this bee had it calculated by its GPS. It always came down here, went here, and then finally up there. And so they've done so many interesting things with honeybees that uh, a person could spend all their life and be intrigued by their communication system. Okay, well, maybe I'll say the title of my sermon right up front so that anyone who wants to get up and walk out can do that right before we get started. I'd rather you do that before we get started than halfway through. Because it wouldn't be fair to me for you to walk out halfway through because I'm only half done and you only got half the sermon. So, anyhow, today I am going to, I titled my message, The Need for Church Standards. The Need for Church Standards. I have, uh, I would like to, in this message, look at the two ditches. I think there's two ditches. I would also like to look at that actually numerous places in the New Testament, the, 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 New, Testament, the New Testament has examples given where the church has made practical um, rules or church standards. And then I would also like to just give a little description of what I think it should look like. <clears throat> I was one of those who grew up in a setting where I felt like the church standards in way too many times held ungodly folks that are not born again, folks that were just living for the flesh, that these standards held them within a box. And so, of course, as we viewed that, as we looked at that, and we all agreed, you know, that God, if a person is truly Spirit-filled, they're walking with God, they're anointed with the Holy Spirit, God's Word is precious to them, there is no reason why you have to give them a set of standards. And so the pendulum swung way over here. And, uh, and so it was like we went around toting, we have no rules. But you know what? That wasn't even true. Because I think all of us, if it wasn't a written standard, we all had a standard that you couldn't be a part of our churches. I couldn't be a part of charity if I had a TV. And so that's a standard. That's what it was. It was somewhat of an unwritten uh, expectation that everyone kind of knew was there. And so we were just kind of fooling ourselves for a long time that we didn't have any, we didn't put any much emphasis on it. Well, what has happened over the years, I really feel like we have really lost out. And I am, I am getting a, I am encouraging that we chart a course, maybe not take now a pendulum swim and swing and come way over here again, because I don't think that's where we want to be. But I think somehow we should be able to encourage life in the Spirit, walking with God, men and women who are born again, men and women who love Jesus, men and women who love the Word of God, and they're willing to align their will and their life in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, 
not everyone's going to be a mature Christian. And so there are young Christians. There are, shall I say it, carnal Christians. I mean, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, you're carnal. And so we like to look at all of that and we'll, we'll have some practical ways to explain that. So I think we have reacted to churches who have misused and abused church rules. I believe, too, that it is just one thing we don't want to do is somehow pen in a bunch of carnal hearts, people who are not born again and only follow the do's and don'ts of the church. That's not at all our interest. Over the years, we've definitely had a few um, specific standards rules, regulations, whatever you want to call them, church standards. And I just uh, talked about one, it's the TV. Um, And I think that's a very appropriate one. In Psalms uh, 101, verse 3, it says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. So there we have a principle. And so we can take that principle, that's the principle, we can take the principle and we can deduct from that, that you know what? TV has such a little bit of positive upbuilding, most of it is negative, that I think we can agree together that the principle is don't set anything wicked thing before your eyes. TV fits into that practically, and so let's just not have that. Let's just agree together we're not going to have that. 2 Timothy 2.22 could be another principle. It says, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So I see someone who is fleeing youthful lust. They really want things that are righteous, that are faith-filled, that are charity, that have peace. And of course, those kind of things don't fit. They just don't fit. So we do have that in a congregation there are the undiscerning. The undiscerning, the young, the ignorant. Ignorant, I say that in a... Maybe I should say simple. Maybe that'd be a better word. I remember one time that I was called simple. And I accepted it. And that's where... And maybe I shouldn't take time to tell this story, but I'll just give away. I haven't always been a good boy. While we were going to charity from 1992 to 95, uh, we drove a whole hour, my wife and I and our little children drove a whole hour to, hour to charity. And we had a, our cell group in our area, and then there were some who kind of joined in. And one morning, one brother said to me, hey, we don't have to go to charity to church this morning. We're going to have church ourselves. And I'm like, I'm with you. And so about four families got together, but oops, one lady almost dominated the service. I wasn't very comfortable with, but I was so, talk about being swept off your feet because of friendship. I was so close to these couple of brothers that I went back the second time. And after the second time, uh uh-oh, Denny and Mose gave us all a call and said, you're at the next brother's meeting. Oh. 
So we went to the brothers' meeting, and we were all called on the carpet. We were rebellious, which is very true. We were doing our own thing, which was very true. It wasn't going to work, which was very, very true. Um, and so, after a while, the three other brothers walked out. Just got up and walked out. And I said, no way. And I was just like, I flew the white flag. And the whole brotherhood fell on their faces and started praying. And I remember Danny Keniston, he prayed for me. And he used the word simple. Now, I wasn't as simple as he thought I was. Simple simply means I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really understand. I did understand. And so we have simple folks who afterwards they look back and say, that was so stupid. What was I thinking? And, hey, a few guardrails might save a lot of heartaches. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, so we have undeserving, the, undiscerning, the young, the ignorant that need protection till there is a larger understanding. For instance, I don't know how many of you know the salt that you call saltpeter. Saltpeter is a salt that you use to cure meat and maybe other things. Saltpeter, if you eat a little bit of it, you don't want to eat any of it. So, wise parents, what do they do? They put it on the top shelf. I can remember ours at home was always on the top shelf. Well, why don't we just put it on the bottom shelf and then teach our one-year-old, no, don't touch it. I mean, shouldn't that be the most spiritual way, the best way to do it? I tell you, all of us as parents say, we cannot take the risk. I mean, what if, perchance, in an un thinking moment that two-year-old grabs that thing and eats it, it's over. And so a little bit of protection put it on the top shelf. One day, it can be on the bottom shelf. Well, maybe not. You know, there's always that risk of even adults closing their eyes for some reason and dumping it on the rice. That'd be terrible. So anyhow, the undiscerning. That's what we're talking about. I'd like to read a poem. I don't know if you heard this poem already or not. And it's titled, A Fence or an Ambulance. Who, who all heard this poem already? A few of you? Just a few of you. I'm going to take time to quickly read it. "'Twas a dangerous cliff, as they freely confess, though to walk near its crest was so pleasant. But over its terrible edge there had slipped a duke and full many a peasant. So the people said something would have to be done, but their projects did not at all tally. Some said, put a fence around the edge of the cliff. Some, an ambulance down in the valley. But the cry for the ambulance carried the day, for it spread through the neighboring city. A fence may be useful or not, it is true, but each heart became brimful of pity for those who had slipped over that dangerous cliff and the dwellers in Highway and Alley, and the dwellers in Highway and Alley gave pounds or gave pence not to put up a fence, but an ambulance down in the valley. 
For the cliff is all right, if you're careful, they said, and if folks even slip and are dropping, it isn't the slipping that hurts them so much as the shock down below when they're stopping. So day after day, as these mishaps occurred, quick forth with these rescuers, Sally, to pick up the victims who fell off the cliff with their ambulance down in the valley. Then an old sage remarked, it's a marvel to me that the people give far more attention to repairing results than to stopping the calls when they'd much better aim at prevention. Let us stop at its source. Let us stop at its source all this mischief, cried he. Come neighbors and friends, let us rally. If the cliff we will fence, we might almost dispense with the ambulance down in the valley. Oh, he's a fanatic, the others rejoined. Dispense with the ambulance? Never. He'd dispense with all charities, too, if he could. No, no, we'll support them forever. Aren't we picking up folks just as fast as they fall? And shall he dictate to us? Shall he? Why should people of sense stop to put up a fence while the ambulance works in the valley? But a sensible few who are practical, too, will not bear with such nonsense much longer. They believe that prevention is better than cure and their party will soon be the stronger. Encourage them then with your purse, voice, and pen. And while other philanthropists dally, they will scorn all pretense and put up a south fence on the cliff that hangs over the valley. Better guide well the young than reclaim them when old. For the voice of true wisdom is calling. To rescue the fallen is good, but tis best to prevent other people from falling. Better close up the source of temptation and crime than deliver from dungeon and galley. Better put up a strong fence round the top of the cliff than an ambulance down in the valley. Okay, church standards. Let's look at a few incidents in the New Testament that prove that this is nothing new. Church standards. We're going to Acts, of course, chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This is where the issue of circumcision came up. I'm going to take the time to read a little bit of this. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way to by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, and this is referring back to the disagreement, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of the matter. And I'm not going to read through that discussion, but basically over the next number of verses, they simply concluded that already in the Old Testament, it was said that the Gentiles would be saved. They received faith just like the Jews did. And that circumcision will not be required. 
Circumcision will not be required. We go over to verse 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. They just uh, quoted the Old Testament. And then the sentence, wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Okay, so basically in saying, that is, that, get the message back. Circumcision is not necessary. Now I find it, find it really interesting that they interjected four things that were not even on the ballot. These things weren't on the ballot. They didn't come back to Jerusalem to discuss these things. Four things that he gave them. So he said, we're going to write to them. And this is what we're going to ask of them. We're not asking circumcision, but this is what we're going to ask. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas surnamed Barsabbas and Silas, chief among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare ye well. Now, a couple of things we can notice there is, the first one is, that uh, they were not going to lay on any greater burden than necessary. And I think we always have to keep that in mind. This is not about church standards to bog down the system to a point that we spend all of our life just trying to maintain these church standards. They were very careful that they, they used them in an expedient way. Very important. But here's a number of things we want to consider. Okay, first of all, the question brought on by circumcision. And that was, requiring this would be adding. And adding would be calling circumcision necessary. And the apostles said, we will not do that. It would have been adding Number two, the apostles did not assume that Gentile believers would automatically understand the walk of faith. You know, they could have assumed that these people get born again, they're filled with the Holy Ghost. These standards as they gave them should have been just simply understood. Well, they didn't figure that way. Number three, it's important to notice, not merely a guiding principle, but they made a very specific application. Very specific application. Abstaining from meats offered to idols, 
abstaining from blood, staying away from things strangled. That's where an animal dies on its own and it is not bled out and from fornications. And so this was not just a guiding principle. This was specific application. Very down to earth, right down where they live. Number four, today we are not faced with these issues necessarily. Especially not meat offered to idols. The church leaders here in Jerusalem, guided by the principles of truth, they presented these practical applications and asked that the believers in Antioch would agree to follow them. Also, number five, this was specific to their culture. Thus, it helps us understand there will be the need of making specific application to our culture. Specific application to our culture by using God-given timeless principles. They made it applicable, applicable to their culture. One of them was, uh, don't eat meats offered to idols. How many here have to be worried about going to a restaurant and eating meat that might have been offered to an idol? That's, that's neither here nor there. We don't even have to worry about that anymore. Let's look at verses 30 and 31. So we have these brothers taking this, these uh, practical agreements back to Antioch. Verse 30, So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle... Verse 31, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. Look at the security that that thing brought. They got word back, circumcision is nothing. We're not going to require that. It's not supposed to be required of anyone. But here are four things. And the church had consolation. They had consolation. It brought a unity. It brought a rest in the congregation. We normally don't think of it that way. But if all of us can open up our hearts where we take timeless principles of God's Word, make very practical application to our culture, it should bring rest to the congregation of believers. Number six, Paul used the writings written standards in his follow-up work on his missionary journey. So it didn't just stop at Antioch. He carried that paper with him as he visited all the other churches and says, here, this is what those men back at Jerusalem decided. Here are four things that you need to make sure that you uphold in your congregations. I mean, some of our churches would have a fit. What if back there at Charity... They would have decided, you know, this charity thing's really getting out of hand. Uh, we're going to send out a decree. Here are four things that we want all of our churches to uphold. Well, for one thing, we would say, we had no decision in the matter. They're just pushing their envelope on us. I didn't hear that here. 
I'm not here to say that's the way it should work. But it seemed like their hearts were wide open to practical guidance. I think our independent spirit has really sold us out on the other field. And so, let's look at that. Acts chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. And as they went, that is Paul and Silas, as they went through the cities, he's going back again to revisit these churches that he earlier preached the gospel to. He's revisiting them. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep. That's those four things. Hey, by the way, folks, here's four things that was decided that all of our churches are going to agree together to do. He's carrying this with him. The decrees. And look what happens. Okay, they were ordained by the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Sounds to me like something's working here. Something is really working well. And uh, it had to do with these practical things. This thing, this thing was carried a long time. Go to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verse 25. This thing was carried a long ways. Acts 21, 25, as touching the Gentiles. This is Paul again speaking. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from Things offered to idols from blood, from things strangled, strangled, and from fornication. There we see them yet. This thing was carried for many years and observed. These practical application to a guiding principle. Still recognized many years later. I think that is really amazing. Now there are extra biblical standards. Let's talk about them. Now, if Brother Elvin got up here and he decided that from now on, uh, no, no men are going to wear beards anymore. Just, we're not, that's just going to be a standard among us, no beards. I would argue with him. Where in the Bible do you get that, Elvin? Tell me. We're going to have to have some kind of a principle here. Where do you get that? Where in the Bible does it say man? I mean... I would have a whole lot more behind me to say that every man here should be wearing a beard. Now, we have looked at that over the years and our churches have just never made a specific standard because it is not that clear. So we chose not to make a specific standard. Now, some of our churches have said, okay, we're fine, beard or no beard, but not all the rest of this stuff. The rest of it falls under fashion and fads, you know, goatees and a little tuff of hair here. I mean, it is amazing the way people wear a little tuff of hair here or that falls under fads and fashions. And so I think we can easily say we're not following the trends of the world. But as far as beard or no beard. If uh, Brother Elvin got up here and decided that everybody is going to do exactly like him, they're all going to wear suspenders. I don't suppose that he's asking that of you are, is he? Everyone's going to wear suspenders. And I would say, wait a minute, Elvin, my belt holds my pants up just as well as your suspenders do. What is the principle? Keep your pants up. So if you want to wear both, wear both. You know, 
And those standards are being made and we've been burned by some of them and we've flipped the whole way over into the other ditch. And I think it's time to just come back carefully because we are not going to the other ditch, but come back carefully and find a place where the congregation can have cons- uh, consolation and where there can be this encouragement and blessing and satisfaction and, and peace and People will just flock over to this church because they know where they're going. They're all happy and know that you know they're unified and they're going to all want to be flocking for the doors, beating a path to the door of the church. Another thing would be men parting their hair in the middle. There's all kinds of things like that. One of them, though, that comes the closest home that I think illustrates both where a practical application is good and does become outdated. And so we cannot just simply make a standard and then leave it in written form for 20, 30, 40 years. It may become outdated. And that is, of course, I grew up in the Horny Mennonite Church. We have black cars. And you know where that came from? They're driving the black cars today. Now, I'll tell you right up front, it is outdated by a long shot. But they had a good principle. I stand behind it back when the first cars were being made. Of course, they came off the assembly line. Black car. Just one after the other. They weren't the shiny black cars of the day. They, you, want a, you want a black car of that day? Get the flat black out and you'll be a little closer. I can tell you a whole story on that too. When I left the church, some people got, I bought a pickup and it wasn't black. And my brothers got after me. Got to paint your vehicle black. You just are using that liberty now. So you and I did. I said, I'm not bending the money. I think that is a foolish way to use God's resources. I'm going to do it as cheap as I can. And I went and bought a whole bunch of flat black spray spray bombs. And I had a black truck. I don't think my motive was right. Okay, so you have them all coming off the assembly line. They were black. If you wanted a, as they said it, a colored car, a blue car, or something like that, you had a special order it, and you paid for it. And then, everybody's head turned when, there goes a blue car. Look at that. That man must have money. And they said, we're not going there. And I say, amen. But you know what's happening today? Today, they are buying vehicles with good paint job, and they're spending two, three, for, I don't know, you probably know better than I do. So much money, and then put a clear coat on it, and their vehicles are shinier and more attractive than what my vehicle is that I drive. So it's a, it's a principle that had its application in its time, and I say amen, I have no problem with that, I think the church did a good thing, but it's outdated. So we want to be careful that, with that. When biblical standards are questioned, one must be able to go to the Bible to explain how they arrived at it. So important. So important. They must be based on a guiding principle. So if somebody comes and says to me, um, why I might do such and such, I need to be able to go back and say, I do it because of. The Bible says this. 
Church of Jerusalem saw the need to make specific application to a guiding principle that all the churches, all the churches that were asked to embrace it, that it would promote unity. There's a couple of other things I could cite that uh, they did. You take, for instance, the widows. Paul was writing to Timothy and said, you know, we're having a little bit of a problem with our widows in our churches. Back then, I don't know, widows may have been even more prominent. There were young widows, and these young widows, the churches were giving them money to help them out, and then they just busied themselves around things that weren't good. And Paul says, you know, this is not a good thing. And so he made a very practical application. What did he do? He said, you know, from now on, the exact line is 60 years of age. And then there were some qualifications to it. 60 years of age. I mean, that gets as practical as practical. Now today, should we hold exactly that? Okay, the Bible says 60 years of age. The guiding principle here is widows are not to be busybodies and going about. And so I don't know if 60 years of age is exact. In that culture, that time, that was the way to do it how you exactly, where you draw the line today, but the principle is the same. We have to be careful about helping widows lest we undo the work of God. Another one was the Thessalonian men. They were sitting around. Jesus Christ is coming back. Ha! He'll be back any time. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe the next day. There's no point in working and providing. i got enough stored up for a whole year and Jesus will come back. So they just stood around and they got themselves in trouble. And Paul said, wait a minute here, this isn't working. And he gave a very specific standard. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Thank you, Paul. Right? Thank you, Paul. I imagine that didn't go down so good. You mean he had the right to tell me how to live my life? He took the needs of the culture and made a very specific decision and standard. Why can't we do that today? Why do we think it's unspiritual when it was the spiritual thing to do back here in the New Testament? Now today we say it's unspiritual. Everybody should be filled with the Holy Ghost. And this shouldn't be an issue at all. So how does this work? 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. uh, Let's turn there. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. First Timothy 2, 9 and 10, it says in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, sobriety. He gives some very specifics, not with braided hair. You know, that was very specific to the culture, braided hair. They would braid their hair and they would braid it in all kinds of ornaments. That was a big thing. Is that a problem today? Not for the most part. I mean, sometimes we like to do that with our little children, you know, and and put all these fancy things in their hair. But for the most part, I don't see that a problem in our churches. But that was a very specific to the culture. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array but with which becometh women professing godliness with good works. A church standard understands these to be examples. 
This is the guiding principle. And so then we can take that principle and we can say, well, that takes care of the wedding ring. And so that's what we do. See, that's another standard that the church, our churches have had for years and years and years. And then we went around toting, we don't have any church standards. Hello? I think we were just shooting ourselves in the foot. We had church standards. So, thus we can say wedding rings. I imagine also that falls under here is um, gold, fashionable, expensive wristwatches that people wear that cost lots and lots of money, that's very attractive. I just don't think they fit in the principle, this, this timeless principle given by the Apostle Paul. And so we can make practical applications to it. Um, nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it say that women are not supposed to wear pants. Do you, does anyone here ever see that? And yet all of us have, that has been a standard that we've had in our churches for a long time. But we don't say anything about it. It's just kind of assumed. Let's be honest. It is from a timeless principle. In the Old Testament it says that a woman should not wear men's clothing. Men should not wear women's clothing. Um, well, they say, what's wrong with pants? Well, we know where pants came from on women. That's all a part of the women's lib movement. They wanted to assume the responsibility, come up to speed with the men. It's all a part of that thing. That's the way it came in. We want nothing to do with it. It is taking on men's clothing and destroying a timeless principle. Church standards derived from a guiding principle is so important. And yet, as important as it is, it can catch our fullest attention. And I'm going to use an illustration, try to illustrate this, so that maybe you will have something to hang on to. Let me, in, in, in driving a vehicle... I'm going to liken the timeless principles of God's Word as the yellow line down the middle of the road. And I'm going to look at these practical principles as guide rails. And, and by the way, don't call them guardrails. They're not guardrails, they're guide rails. They specifically changed that many years ago because someone hit the guardrail and they were killed and they sued the state because it didn't guard them from destruction. So they changed and now they're politically correct guide rails. So make sure you say it right. They're guide rails. And so we look at them as the, the church standards made from the practical applications or the um, guiding principles. So when I'm driving down the highway, where do, where do I look? What do I pay attention to? I pay attention to the road. I am looking at that yellow line. I am not looking at the guardrail. Most of the time, I don't even know the guardrail's there. And if I'm driving down the road and I'm focusing on the guardrail, I'm done. It's over. And that's a lot of what's happening with our churches. And so, Brother Elvin, we need to preach the Gospel. We need to preach walking in the Spirit. We need to be preaching staying in the Word of God. We need to be preaching men and women that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that are walking with God. That's where we have to be. 
That's where we have to be. But you know what? I'm kind of happy for those guide rails. If one day I'm driving down the road and I fall asleep, I am so thankful. Did I mean to go off the edge of the road? Definitely not. Suppose I'm going down the road and somebody else comes in and, 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 and runs me off the road. Am I ever glad there's guide rails there? Suppose it's a young driver and they're driving along and this big semi is passing them and they get all nervous and they get off the side of the road and lose control, hit the guide rail, and thankfully they're saved. Oh, thank God for the guide rail. So our focus cannot be on the guide rails primarily. Our focus needs to be on the yellow line. We need to be preaching that. But you know, we need to be maintaining those guide rails. Because in a church, there's those that are simple. There's those that are mature that sometimes actually fall off the wagon. That shouldn't happen. But it happens. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, it happens. Much better would it be to bang into a guide rail than just go right down over the cliff and totally destroy your life. It would give one chance to save this person. Now, will it save them in the long run? If they keep bumping into that guide rail, eventually they'll go over it and it'll be over. But let's preach, let's teach, drive by the center line. And then let's put guide rails up at the dangerous spots. If you ever want an interesting ride, go from Harrisonburg, Virginia, over the Shenandoah Valley, uh, mountains, over the Shenandoah Mountains. I don't know, it's such a high elevation, but it's switchbacks the whole way up, like this, whole way up, whole way up, and then the whole way down. And I just remember that one place, you're coming down and it's a... It's a really sharp, sharp turn, and it got guardrail. I mean, I'm sorry, guide rails all around, and it's a deep ravine that goes way down. And I looked at my wife last time we just drove it here a couple of weeks ago. I looked at my wife and said, "Thank God for the guide rails." I, you know what? I feel safer. I do. Do you ever drive on a road where they should have a guide rail and they don't? It makes you a little bit nervous, and I think that's what happens to our churches. And so preach, Brother Elvin, Brother um, Larry, preach. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the yellow line. But let's, on the dangerous spots, let's put a few guide rails. The idea of no church standards is to ignore the fact that we are a community, a collective body. How can two walk together unless we agree? And that's what's happening to our churches. There are no standards. Everybody makes their own decision. They do what they want. And it is not working. So anyhow, how should this look? I think it's important that ministers and brothers, they sit together using the timeless guiding principles of God's Word and make practical application to the things that we're facing today. Creating a church standard. I think it is very, very important that these, quote, church standards are reviewed regular. 
we have committed in our congregation, we have church standards, and we actually have them written down. But I think the thing to save, save us is they need to be reviewed regular. Some things every year. For instance, technology. That thing is such a fast-moving, rapid uh, movement across this, the face of America and the world that it's something that has to be updated yearly. It may become out of date so easily. So, review them regular. Some things every two years, something every three maybe. So, A, what is the guiding principle? What is the guiding principle? Let's always make sure that along with any practical standard, there is a guiding principle so that we can tell our children and we can tell others, we do this because of this specific principle. I think we need to also, in other words, we revisit these things every year, every two years, whatever, and we go over the same things. What is the guiding principle? Why did we arrive where we did? Number two, or what is the guiding principle? Number two, why did we arrive at this decision? Why did we think we need to put a guide rail in this section of the road? And number three, is it still relevant for today? And number four, is it fulfilling the purpose for what it was put there for? Those things have to be asked regular. And that way... We'll remember, we'll know, new people coming in, our young people growing up will understand why we do what we do. So important. Another thing we must do is we must teach on these things regular and consistently. The whys and the wherefores. Not something that we just put in a book somewhere and we forget it for ten years. But that we would teach on the whys and the wheres. Church standards are not a fence to fence in disobedient, sinful hearts. It's not what it's for. Church standards are for everyone, especially the simple, the careless, and the undiscerning. I think one that I talked about last night could be a good illustration here. If you were to get all the young people together of all of our churches and sit them down and say, is it necessary to have a standard on courtship? And have them come up with the standard. I don't think that would be wise. I don't, think it would ever, I don't think it would come out well. Fathers and mothers who have walked through that time of their life look back and they say, some of them are now saying today, oh, if only somebody would have told me. Oh, if somebody would have only told me. And that's what happens. And so these guiding principles can be such a safe thing. The youth may look at them and say, well, I know why they did what they did. I know why they're asking what they're asking. But I don't really understand the depth of it. After they're married, they would say, ah, oh, now I understand. That's all guide rails primarily are for. It's what they're for. 
We must appeal to the heart. We must appeal to the heart. We must have sincere heart devotion to God. And last of all, church standards, they bring unity. They bring unity that the world may know that we are His disciples. Now let's, let me just walk through you a real practical one that we have, have looked at. And I'm just going to pick on one of, I could choose a number of them, but let's, let's uh, go to this one on modesty uh, for the men. Modesty for the men. We believe that uh, Scripture, as it gives it modesty for the women, we believe that that's also a principle that is just as relevant for the men. And so what we do as men in our congregation, we brothers will sit together in a brothers meeting, and I would say, I will say this, you know, there is this guiding principle, modesty. And let's talk about the principle. What does this principle mean? And then we will talk about how does this apply to us today. And then we'll talk about all kinds of things. And I really enjoy that. We have a bunch of brothers. We just sit together and we talk about these things. This one throws out that, that one that, and that one that. And at the end, I kind of sum it up and say, okay, these are the things that we're agreeing we're going to uphold. And so some of the things may be simply like this. Talking about clothing. Of course, modesty, simplicity, and godliness are all the principles, the guiding principles. And so we ask that all of our men wear loose, free from fashion, practical, and durable clothing. That's a very specific application. We ask that our men do not wear only t-shirts, and that our men do not wear muscle shirts, etc. We asked that because of the guiding principle of modesty and simplicity, we asked that our men wear shirt sleeves that at least come down to the elbow. Why is that? We know why that is. Men like to show off. Let's just cover. Let's just cover it. We asked our men to wear shirt sleeves that come down to the elbow. We actually went as far as asking our men that when they preach and they lead songs, that they would wear long sleeves. Some of our charismatic song leaders, they lead songs way up here, you know, way up here. And sometimes the women have to look the other way. Totally unnecessary. It is totally unnecessary. This should not happen in the church of God. Another thing that we ask of our men is that they keep their shirt tails in. Can you believe that we would ask that? Keep your shirt tails in. Wear a belt. Keep your pants or suspenders. Keep your pants up. What we have is, I don't know about you folks, but uh, even I like really like to play volleyball. And I have this thing that whatever your hand finds do, do it with your might. So whether you're praying, pray with all your might. Whether you're preaching, preach with all your might. Whether you're working, work with all your might. And guess what? When you're playing, play with all you got. So, wear shirts with a long enough shirt tail in that you can stretch and you can jump and you can 
do all kinds of acrobats, keep that thing in. Because our young ladies have complained. Oh, we're helping someone move. And all of a sudden, the lady's got to look the other way. Someone's bending over. This doesn't have to happen. It shouldn't happen. And so, a real practical thing. Maybe one day we'll change and maybe we'll wear long gowns and then it won't even fit. I have no idea. So we should revisit it every couple of years. We encourage our men to wear simple haircuts. I mean, just make a nice haircut and then just comb your hair naturally. I mean, it makes life so simple. Forget all the gel and all those other things that you have to use to try to hold it in some awkward place. We had a preacher preaching at our Bible school. Some of you remember that, whoever was at Bible school. And uh, he talked about some of these fads. And one of them is where the young men like to grease their hair and then comb it front and then put it straight up. He said, he doesn't understand it. It looks like you just went up and combed yourself and greased up and then banged into the wall and that's the way it stayed. Um, and of course, we ask that if you're going to wear a beard, wear a beard. If you're not going to wear a beard, don't wear a beard. Free from all the other fads, goatees, long sideburns, tufts of hair here, tufts of hair there. We encourage your men, keep the sideburns at least above the middle ear, middle ear above. So those are some practical things we do. Those are the practi- As for the men, those are the practical things we have put into place at this point. Maybe two years from now when we re- revisit it, we'll say, well, that one doesn't hold out anymore. Take that one out. But we better add this one or this one because they are a problem. One other thing that has to happen, and this is, this is discouraging, where fathers sit in the brothers' meeting and we say, now we're going to agree on these things. I agree on it. But they don't take it home. They don't enforce it at home. Some of them don't have the connection with their family. They can't do it. That's such a sad case. That is so sad. Fathers, you need the backbone. You're the leader of the home. You're responsible. You will carry the responsibility. We need every father to jump on board and say, I am on board. We need to be clear. These are things we agree on. Or we need to be clear and say, these are things that don't matter. They did that in the early church. They said, circumcision, it's a no issue. We will not make that an issue. We need to make that clear. These things are not issues. These things are issues. We need to be clear. And then, of course, my brothers, they like to come to me and they say, and what if somebody doesn't keep the standards? Is there some kind of teeth to be put to it? And I say, "Ah, we don't need it with my brothers. They're all going to jump on the bandwagon. Well, no, it don't work that way. The other Sunday, brother got in the pulpit and he preached. He had short sleeves. And uh, one brother said something to me. And I said, not my job. You go talk to him. I did talk to him then because I noticed it also. And uh, he said, you know, 
Yeah, he, didn't, he didn't remember that. He didn't remember that. It's amazing how that just slips by some people. It slips right by him. Okay, so there is going to, you know, we, there is responsibility to the brotherhood if these things aren't upheld. Violating the church agreements or standards. I hope that that was clear enough. I hope that you understand that we're not swinging into the other ditch. And that I think we have responded to where church standards have not been used properly. We swung way over in the other ditch. And that hasn't worked. We've seen from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, the, the Council of Jerusalem, and down through we see in that they handed out some very, very practical things that touched their culture. And I believe the Apostle Paul would say, yeah, just follow my example. You've got your culture today. Come on, what have you been waiting on? Make practical applications to your culture. I thought you would have picked that up just reading the Bible. I've done it all the way through. Now it's time for you to do it. Oh, but he didn't specifically tell Hello, I can just hear Apostle Paul, hello, where have you been? Can't you read between the lines? So, for us as ministers, go for the heart. Go for the heart. We want everyone truly born again, walking with God. Holy Spirit filled, lovers of the truth, obeying from the heart, sincere, godly, Christ-like, Desiring for sanctification. Number two, always teach the principle. Always teach the principle. Do not teach a practical application without teaching the principle. Don't ever do it. Number three, review regular. Keep them updated. Explain the whys and the wheres. Number four, do not produce standards that cannot be supported by a biblical guiding principle. Do not produce standards that cannot be supported by a biblical guiding principle. Number five, be clear. Make sure that all the brothers and sisters and young people are taking the responsibility of upholding them along with everyone else. That was a very practical message, but I really think as you look at the, the overall face of our churches today, it's a dire need. Churches are leaving and going out of the world anymore. Some of our churches are saying... And it's coming really tight into a corner where some of our churches are saying we can't identify with all that call themselves charity. And a very specific thing, I had got the burden that our congregation would uh, get connected with CAM on the CAS program. And so I encouraged one of our brothers, two of our brothers, to pursue it. And so they pursued it. And so we have been working through that. Uh, two of our brothers have been up uh, in Ohio, sat down with the CAM, well, it was the CAS board, which actually ends up being a whole lot of different churches. Men and I, Beachy Amish, it's, it's a, and uh, anyhow, we presented to them our confession of faith and our practical standards of our church. 
we produce to them the direction we're going and they look at us and they say, how does this work? Are you a part of charity? Well, yeah. They say, well, we can't find our way through that. How are we going to find our way through that? Because that church over there says they're charity. We're not comfortable with them at all. You say you're charity. We're comfortable with you. So now what do we do with it? And so we had to try to persuade them that we do have a group coming out and charting a bit of a different course because we are concerned about the worldliness that is creeping into our churches. And they said, fine. We have no problem with that. We actually support that. We are blessed with what you're doing. We're happy with where you were going. We're happy with what we see in your families. But they said, you better identify yourself. So we know what to do. So I don't even know. At this point yet, they have not accepted us. And it's basically on that basis. Identify yourself. Our churches are going off the deep end. There's nothing to stop them. There are no standards. Everybody makes their own decision. And there are pastors who are walking out of the churches and they're comfortable with their own churches anymore. Something has to change. And so I would appeal to your hearts to take this very practical message. Young people, take this very practical message and really consider it. I have talked to ministers, quite a few, scattered across the United States. And the cry is many of them, from many of them, are the same. I am working right now with one, two, three, I'm not sure how many churches, trying to help them walk through this thing and bring the church back to where the ministers are comfortable. The ministers are no longer comfortable in their own churches and they have to make a decision. Either I get out or we have to chart a course. And I'm saying something has to change. And so I am here preaching a message that probably has not been preached by very many. And so I am open to any kind of input from any of you brothers. We're, we're charting a course. I welcome you to join. And you can definitely help me find my way. So God bless you. I am excited for this congregation. I think you have something going for you. And I think if you could just rally together in a few of these points, they'll be beating a path to this church. People are looking for security. They're looking for something that they know will be there 20 years from now. We got young families that are rising up and saying, I have to know that the church is going to chart a course. I want my children in a safe environment. And so we need to do it. God bless you. God give you wisdom. Tomorrow, Lord willing, I would like to preach a message yet on the whole. Fathers, your responsibility. Mothers, your responsibility. Young people, your responsibility. So I welcome you back for that. God bless you.